Are we on the way for the most right-wing general election in living memory? You'd really be pushed to think of anything that could possibly be more destructive. Uh, we have a bizarre consensus developing now between the Labour Party and the Tories on practically everything from their migration policies, their position on trade unions, their refusal to uh, to pledge that they would cut the two child cap on benefits. But every other policy area that involves spending seems to be something that cannot even be broached. And now we've got Keir Starmer praising Thatcher for basically mobilising the entrepreneurial spirit in Britain when she destroyed communities and has left us with legacies that we're still paying off in terms of broken, privatised public services. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. And uh, the sun is shining, the snazz and, you know, I think it's really brilliant the way we have up here. We've got all these gritters that I've named. We've got Sled Zeppelin, Basil <laughs> Salty, my favourite, Charles Renice Mackenslush. <laughs> The, the, None of which genius. were cruising the vicinity. No, well, <laughs> on that's the, big, the, the day of the ding yeah, dump. The day of the big, yeah, because that uh, was a way to say you, the name to add to that uh, is Leslie Riddick, because you were out gritting the streets and the roads instead of appearing on the the Trevor Phillips show. Were you not? Well, yes, in a nutshell, that is exactly sort of what ended up happening. <clears throat> I was meant to be going down the road on Saturday woke up to hear that Glasgow Airport was closed and then thought, I mean, I wasn't going through Glasgow Airport, but just that that was a measure of, you know, that is serious snow and kind of wondered. Then, of course, discovered there's also an Aslef's train strike in England. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and then started thinking, God, this is going to be a bit of a nightmare. Um, and, and then discovered it was all academic anyway, because <clears throat> in this little village, which is right on the shores of the Tay, uh, there's and indeed you've got the same along at Wormit. In fact, pretty much the whole of Scotland's got this lip that goes around the coast, which is basically a kind of raised beach from the, the yeah. whole, you know, land rising after the, the ice ages and stuff, which just means it's it's maddening. It's only a tiny little incline, but you can't get up it, you know, unless <laughs> yeah. you've got winter tires or you've got four wheel, even four wheel drive people. Suddenly, you know, you're, you're, it went from one minute at about 8 a.m. on on Saturday thinking, huh, you know, this might be a bit of a, you know, trackle this whole trip to sort of, you know, pe people coming in on the wee WhatsApp group we've got here going, I can't get out. I can't get out. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And actually, it just it was a goner. So yeah. I had to cancel. And thankfully, the producer on the sky thing was a Scot himself. So you know, I mean, you'd have to say, and this is a thing because I think sometimes people in cities are looking at pristine streets where the yeah. gritters have been. And I'll quite grant you, though, just we, you know, side roads and the pavements are lethal. You know, I'm not saying that it's a doddle for everyone, but by and large, it can be fairly clear on the main roads. And you still can't get up that damn little <laughs> tiny hill unless your whole village is able-bodied enough to get out with spades and have, have had the wit to press to get gritting buckets somewhere near where they can access yeah. them. And happily, we'd done all that. So there's a wee posse from the village basically all out with spades, actually trying to just chip off the, the ice that there was underneath the snow. That was the problem. 
it didn't seem like it was a tremendously icy day, but it's just just doesn't take much to 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 create that problem. So by gum, we were all knackered by the end of it. Um, <laughs> And it still took another day because the people that were desperately trying to leave finally got up that little hill and then embarked on the next relatively flat bit to go up the final little corner hill uh, onto what we might yeah. laughingly call the main road, the which main is road. another single track road, yes. and got stuck again, tried seven times. We pushed, we tried everything, and then it got dark, so we all just thought, nah. So we were out on Sunday morning, actually, um, at 9 a.m., Again, chipping away at the ice to try and get this car around the corner when the gritter turned up. So happily, one of the women in the posse actually stood in front of the gritter, just jumped in front of it. Oh, no. The chain of men's square moment. Well, quite. Although that's just a bad analogy. Yes, Um, I'm sorry about that. um, And just sort of, you know, said look, you've got to come down this village street because please. So happily, you know, the gritter came down and it's incredible the difference it makes, you know. So and of course, when it, when it all starts to melt, you then think you are mad because when you look mm-hmm. at it now and you think, it's, what happened? It's fine, yeah. you know. So, yeah, that was no trip to London. Um, so I ended up and, and, you know, here's this is the thing, isn't it? Because that was going to be all that, you know, huge journey to get down to London Um and basically, um, you know, it was that's that's the kind of problem of, you know, we all, all have got used to so used to Skype and Zoom and whatever. Yeah. And this is the problem for, for the outliers. I mean, in a way, it seemed to me I, I kind of thought I had to do this if I'm asked, because how often do you get a Scott or independent supporter for an hour and a half on yeah. a not that you're speaking by any means all the time, but still you get a reasonable, you know, contribution on that programme with a wee panel of three people. And it feels like you have, if you're asked, you have to do it. Um, But, I mean, it's basically like a two-day trip. It's like crossing the Andes by frog. And, I mean, the producer had sort of said, I will, we'll just schedule you in for January. And I sort of thought, do you think it's liable to be any more secure as a trip on in January, you know, or February? Or March. I mean, the beast from the east, as I remember, was late March. Yeah. So, la-di-da. Yeah, well, I mean, I would have watched it if you'd been on. So, I didn't watch it. Uh, did you watch the, the show you were meant to be on? And- well, I did. <clears throat> oh, right. I, I don't have Sky, so I couldn't watch it again. And you do need to watch stuff to get a measure of, you mm. know, what the crack is. What struck me was, if I turned up, I would have been in a world of my own. Okay. And I, I know this is my experience of going to London generally, but that hasn't happened for some years. By gum. I mean, first of all, on, on Keir Starmer's sort of praising Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, words actually fail me. I hardly know where to start on that. It makes me so angry. It actually makes me upset Yeah. Um, because she wrecked people's lives. This is not just some little discussion about, you know, sort of abstract ideas about about ideologies or something, she wrecked lives for nothing, you know, just to destroy the power of unions, to destroy all all, all the previous pact that was essentially the, you know, the welfare state within Britain. And in so doing, and it, it's not just, you know, nationalists that have said it, she basically started the breakup of Britain. I suppose you should actually thank her for that. But At I mean, cost? it's not, it's yes. And and what cost? I mean, today I was listening to a bit of LBC 
where the uh, Nick Ferrari is, I mean, speechless with rage about the fact that Thames Water, which is just an utterly crap company, um, has got debt of £15 billion and yeah. yet has got mega, you know, all its its uh, directors and its chief executive are on massive salaries. And the best Labour can propose uh, is to have more teeth for the regulator so yeah. that if they completely screw up, as they do year after year after year, you can actually affect their bonuses. They're already on a million plus as their basic salary. And he asked, thank God, he asked directly, would you consider renationalizing water? And I, you know, one day I would mm-hmm. love it to hear, like they 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 have avoided in Scotland, you know, like they've still got it in public ownership, but no. But anyway, would you renationalize water? And her answer was no, they should clear up their own mess. Yeah. So the thing is, there it is. That is Thatcher's legacy, folks. <clears throat> Everything, you know, from energy to water to BT to the post office. You name it, every public good became essentially a private bad. uh, And we're still picking up the tab, the cost, the lack of productivity, everything about that. And for him, Starmer to just waltz into that, you know, to try to pick up, you know, Tory votes just just for that, just that. You know, just that kind of weak a reason to basically try to rewrite history like that. I would have gone off my head yeah. on that program, and nobody did. I mean, Paul Mason was on. Oh, right. That's, and the that's thing been is, the generation of someone who I had respect for as a as a progressive journalist. Because he he now that he's a Labour candidate, yeah, he basically just said, well, you know, it's a problem for Labour, and you've got to take it in the round, and you've got to sort of. Yeah. I mean, it's just crap. And actually, George Caravan wrote an excellent article, yes, uh, maybe the day before, just going into this nonsense idea that that in some way Thatcher unleashed the entrepreneurialism oh, yeah. of Britain, which yeah. is just. You know, it's everyone that's listening to this kind of already knows that that is rubbish, but it was there just listed point after point. And Paul Mason uh, just basically pulled his punches completely. The the Lib Dem on it hardly said much. The, you know, the Tory guy, uh, again, just, you know, just scoffed a little and they moved on. Yeah. And And that's the key point. And they moved on. Yes. So it's like not much to see here. This is not yep. a particular big deal. And just while we're on this thing about, you know, Starmer, just while we're in the middle of it, I was reading a really fascinating piece that was just looking at this uh, this quest for, you know, a par- the, the, the claim that was made actually in 2021 after in the wake of Boris Johnson's big victory, uh, the claim was from the new Labour I don't know, sort of new strategist or whatever, that they had millions of votes to reclaim, to find back uh, from from the Tories. And that was that was what was going to govern all the policy. Actually, this piece in the FT, so no slouches mm-hmm. here, right? Uh, this this had actually analysed the lost votes. There were 300,000 votes lost to the Tories. There were 300,000 lost to reform at UKIP, basically. There were yeah. 600,000 lost to the Lib Dems and Greens. Yeah. Well. So what are we talking about yeah. here? You know, I mean. Yeah. yeah. 
Then Starmer's own constituency, Leslie, don't you saw there was a council by-election and it was a massive swing to the Greens. The Greens won that council by-election. Oh, right. So people are, are discovering that there is there aren't there is somewhere else to go. I don't know if you heard uh, uh, it was a, a, John McTernan, not exactly on the left of the Labour Party, and a, a, a significant strategist for the Labour Party, said he couldn't understand why Keir Starmer had done it. He said there's no need to do this. He couldn't understand it. Neil Finlay went on the attack. Uh, and again, said precisely. I mean, this is the, said precisely what you've said and what we're all saying about the, the destruction that Thatcherite policies with this unleashing of entrepreneurialism. Well, all it seemed to unleash, if you actually look at things like uh, sale of council houses, the fact that it made it's made an absolute packet for private landlords who after the initial wave of people buying their council houses, bought up these council houses, now rent them out at extortionate rents in comparison yeah. to what people would have been paying in the social sphere. And just, and just to extend that thought, I was speaking somebody to somebody recently who works in the energy industry, and he was basically saying that the attempt to insulate homes has been a total failure south of the border, precisely because the sell-off of council housing has left a complete welter pit, you know, of a kind of you know privatized housing mm -hmm. stock which which councils have basically just washed their hands off i mean fair enough it's not their housing anymore and there was always a much lower rate of social housing south of the border so that essentially nobody knows the state of that the housing stock in many council areas mm -hmm. south of the border this guy said in total contrast to scotland where actually although we still have really unsatisfactory um, insulation and actually, the Greens were right a long time ago. I remember sitting in the Scottish Parliament listening to this in 2007 or 8 when Alex Salmon came in and the Greens had proposed having a complete blanket, just, every, you know, just a street by street, um, a new company set up to do street by street insulation, um, irrespective of, you know, who had, if it was private, mm -hmm. if it was whatever, you know, and that was knocked back by the SNP in favour of the British scheme, which was to allow the utilities, because yeah. this was just another way of putting money in their blooming pockets, the utilities to come in and do insulation. And the amount of insulation they have done has been, you know, really, really low. However, in Scotland, at least because there is still council housing, there is a higher amount of social housing and the council still kept some sense of responsibility. Apparently, it's much easier to know who's got what insulation where. And that just brings you back to the enduring damage done by Thatcher, just, you know, basically creating this this almost impossible to manage, impossible to govern, and then impossible to regulate system in every aspect of our lives. And because people, you know, attention gets drawn so quickly away, here we are with even an intelligent man like Nick Ferrari. You know, I mean, he did ask the question about privatisation. He should have stuck the blooming boot in. Yeah. Why are you not going to re, you know, re-nationalise re this? And let's get into the costs. You know, there's a discussion about <clears throat> whether or not they should let these companies go bust, essentially. I mean, if Thames has got a £15 billion debt, and this is appalling because this is, you know, they've, anyway... 
you know, is there a, pot a potential for Thames water to go bust? And then do you end up having to pay a lot of money but, but to, anyway, re to yeah, renationalise it? So, yeah. I mean, come on, everybody. And I would have been sitting there. OK, I've just had a coffee. So, I'm, you know, that's what I'm like <laughs> at the moment. Right. But still, I would have been kind of thinking, is this not the centre of where this discussion is at? Yeah. But no, off it yeah. got doofed into the corner. And the next question, well, the next contribution was, um, I should have looked at the name of the woman who's the Israeli ambassador to um, oh, Well done, you. Have yeah. you got that written down? No, I just, well, I had it written down, but I, she is seared into my memory because uh, just a quick word about her. I mean, she was so right wing that Melanie Phillips, Melanie Phillips complained about her being appointed as ambassador to the UK. Um, and a woman who's, uh, who invited when she was a government minister uh, invited in uh, a group for advice and support of it in a group who are anti uh, cross religious marriage between uh, Jews and non Jews and even anti uh, Jews in Israel doing business with non Jewish companies and a woman who's keen on sending the IDF in and managed to spend the vast majority of her time when she should have been doing national service as a tourist guide in museum because of her religious beliefs. So, yeah, Sipi Hotovli with everything is seared into my mind. Right. Well, um, <laughs> she was on and basically said something to the effect of, I mean, you know, the usual conversation was going on because the ceasefire had suddenly ended. Yeah. Both sides were blaming each other. And we're back to this, you know, a question where you get an Israeli spokesperson on, um, the, the interviewer will will absolutely say people's still horrified about October the 7th and as you know, yeah. the, and the return of the ref, the captives, um, the sort of stories they have to tell and then say, and you can't kill 16,000 people in response. You yep. just can't do it. You can't do it. Now, you know, this did not happen uh, on this in this interview. And you can see how difficult it is. I mean, this woman is a very difficult interviewee, <laughs> but there was a point where she actually said something to the fact, I may have not got this verbatim, that, uh, you know, when Trevor Phillips had pressed on that, you know, your, your quest to sort of hunt down, you know, obviously hunt down Hamas is putting tens of thousands of, of, of innocent uh, Palestinians in the firing line. You know, you are inevitably, mm -hmm. can you just accept you are killing them? And uh, she she said, well, it's so difficult for us to be able to trace this these labyrinths of tunnels. I wish we had something like a Harry Potter wand that we could wave oh, to make God. it easier. And at that point, I just thought, I can't, I can't, I just couldn't do this. Because, I mean, and she sort of smiled when she said it. Mm -hmm. I thought, I mean, am I the only person? And again... It was hardly picked up. Everybody just went back into the discussion about, you know, mm, yeah, it's a bit intractable and what a problem. That. And it's kind of like we've now got a situation where it, it, I can't even. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll come in there because I was watching the news this morning and I, I, I had to. Uh, Joe looked at me and uh, I was crying because what I saw of a wee boy, a three year old wee boy who had died. But but to, to say, but Sky, I thought Stuart Ramsey of Sky has been absolutely superb on this. And uh, Sipia Tovoli was on and she was saying that, you know, there are safe zones. There are safe zones. They can go to the Al Mowazi. Al Mowazi is 4% of the total acreage of Gaza and they're trying to they say that 80% of the population are going to move there and she claimed 
There was international infrastructure. These were safe zones. And James Elder of UNICEF came on, and I've, I've rarely seen a man so shattered in my life saying, this is the worst thing he's ever seen in his life, says, the war on children in, is, is, is horrible and vicious in the south as it was in the north. Safe zones are safe only with food, water, shelter and protection. And there is none. What Sky then did in the previous interview with Sibiotovic is cut to a wide angle shot of this safe zone saying there is no infrastructure there. There are no international organisations there. There is no food. There is no water. It is a recipe, as James Elder said, for this to get even worse in terms of disease. And I watched Labour MP after Labour MP who abstained who abstained when there was the SNP amendment on the King's speech calling for an immediate ceasefire, now calling for an immediate ceasefire. And it just disgusted me that the ability to play politics with Bairns' lives that is going on. And that's where we're at. And Sipi Hotovli is just another example of the of the propaganda war that is being waged by Israel. And being won. And being because the thing is, yeah. you know, most programs get. I mean, the thing, you know, the thing is, there is, there is a, I mean, righteousness is not even the right word because it's, 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 you know, it's not the right word. The, the first hurt and assault and horror was a was against them, and so they, 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 all their spokespeople carry, if you like, the, the hurt, and. So when you walk into that with anybody who's been through some traumatic trauma, and it totally is a national trauma, you're on the back foot because, you know, you recognise these people are just in, you know, in, in a terrible, terrible yeah. situation. And so with with all these things, I've watched this so often in Northern Ireland, you know, where nobody can probe too deeply when an atrocity has been committed and everybody lurches into the language the received language, it's almost like sometimes it reminds me of when you go to, a, you know, sometimes it's a relief when you go to a funeral when there's very, very formal language and biblical tracts read out. It keeps you from the emotion yes. because it distances you from the whole yeah. thing, you know. And actually, funnily enough, sometimes it can be, more, I find it more difficult sometimes to go to sort of humanist um you know, funerals, because there's nothing, <laughs> there's not, because there's so no real, ceremony. There's, no, yes. there's nothing that, that protects your feelings. You know, you're just yeah. completely awash with emotion. So, you know, this is what people do in the media as well. I mean, even just, you know, unequivocally condemn. I could, you know, I can hardly say that without a Northern Ireland accent, because <laughs> that's all everybody did the whole time was unequivocally con condemn stuff and then try to inch on a little bit to the politics of it and inch my goodness, centimetre on, because because of all of that, it's taken decades to get to any semblance of a proper political discussion about Northern Ireland. And this is what uh, is going to end up happening, obviously, with Israel, Gaza and the, you know, the West Bank and everywhere where it looks like settlers are running amok. Yeah, because nobody has the courage to challenge the Israelis right to be hurt. And for that to basically be, and I'm sorry to use this phrase, the trump card in every mm -hmm. in every single discussion. And obviously because of what happened in the Holocaust. Yeah. So all of that is sitting behind every Israeli speaker and it's cowing almost every interview interviewer 
from basically walking across a line of just saying you are murdering tens of thousands of people. And in fact, you know, some of the incredibly impressive cross-community women's groups that there are have pointed out that this may be, you know, who knows, but it may be the first conflict in which the majority of those killed are women. The largest single cohort. We've gone from wars back in the last century where the majority were soldiers, and that was in the First World, Second World War. It had changed by the end of the century to be to being mostly civilians. And and now with Gaza, it's mostly women and children. Yeah. Now I mean you can't keep ruling out all the kind of you know the old patter uh, in this situation because this this is this is a genocide. Yeah. So you know that yeah. that so there's my problem. I'm sitting watching this, you know, f- thinking, wow, if I had been there, yeah, again, nobody, you know, nobody was really going to t- take that. Nobody even picked up, I think, what she said about the Harry Potter wand. Um, and yes. you sort of begin to think, I don't know, are we? What is going on here? Is it just that so many, you know, so much kind of um, London-centered. And actually, to be fair now, I put on after that, I put on the Sunday show on Radio Scotland. Now people mm-hmm. can have their criticisms of that. By gum, was it on the money? Yeah. You know, I mean, in comparison, it was robust and kind of frisky and had r- relevant, you know, challenging yeah. people on. Yeah, Oof. I mean, before, I mean, just when you were talking about that there, I listened to Adam Broomberg, a South African he said, yeah, he's the, he's the bad news man. I mean, he was in South Africa under apartheid and that heightened his, his perspectives on discrimination and apartheid. You know, I mean, he mm. recognised that there, he's an artist, he's a video artist, uh, he's a Palestinian activist. So now he's now, I mean, uh, the paradox is, and he said he didn't want to make it about himself when he was talking, but he's now, he was a professor and that's how he earned his money. He keeps his family together, is is working as an educator and that's been prevented from because of the, the actions of the German government in declaring him to be an anti-Semite because of the statements he made about the, the state of Israel. But the, the point when you were talking about it was that he made, I think, and I'm going to paraphrase here because he said it much more beautifully than I did, as there are two ways to react he said, to appalling events like the Holocaust or the Shoah. One, as a Jew, you can turn around and say, this was appalling. It must not happen ever again to me and mine. But the way he took it was, this was appalling. It must not happen to anyone ever again. And he said that 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 is the difference in the, the stance that he's taken and what he he learned from that, um, and and I think that that that's at the key of it. And again, with the recognition of the heart, and the recognition, and you're condemned for turning and saying this did not begin on October the seventh. Yeah, this did not mm. begin on October the seventh with the appalling actions and the continuing hostage taking of innocent people. That, that's gone on but what is going on and, and it, I just cling to the hope you know a hope that Biden and Kamala Harris have now come out and said this has gone too far there must be a diminution of civilian casualties you know no what is a proportionate number of civilians they've got to die in order for this to happen yet the United States of America continues to supply billions and billions of dollars to the state of Israel and billions and billions of dollars worth of armaments. They could cut that off, they could shut it off now, and they could make an impact. Well, there was a very interesting piece on Channel 4 News last night that had actually gone to uh, one of the Muslim 
communities in America. Uh, the, the, the Democrats got 52% of Muslim American vote. It's now down to 7%. Yeah. Whether that's a very big constituency in a huge country with that's a very, you know, multiracial country, I don't know. But still, I mean, that's like really lost votes. And they, they talked to three young uh, Muslims who were just about, you know, the first to have their first voting next time round. And they were basically saying, well, now they just feel lost to democracy because there's no way they're going to vote for Trump. But there's absolutely no way they're going to vote for Biden because he's yeah. so associated with actually, you know, just as you say, it's supplying the weapons that actually killed their extended community. So, yeah, it's a it's a total kind of mess. And I guess the thing will be, too, that, you know, there'll be a point where with 54 journalists killed. Yeah. Since this all began in the, in Gaza and the West Bank, there there's an ever declining number of people who are actually in there to report on what's going on. And I'd still say to anybody, if you're not watching Channel 4 News, what are you doing with yourselves, really? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, their their coverage is unbelievable, basically, um, and and incredibly powerful, very fair and very searching, you know, in ways that I have to say watching the I don't not to be fair, I don't really watch the BBC enough now to know what they're up to. But even last night, I find myself uh, jumping between because blinking I'm a celebrity, get me out of here is on the ITN, <laughs> 10 o'clock news is often at 10.15. Um, but I, I find myself unable to watch the 10 o'clock news because the presenters just basically sound like they don't care. Um, they just keep, you know, they're just auto cue pilots. And yeah. I'd, I'd say at least at, by ITN that they fairly throw themselves into the the, the kind of huge tongue lashing there was about um, the the proposals put forward, you know, by the Tories yesterday to try to limit migration. My God, you know, it's it was extraordinary. It was scathing, sarcastic. Um, the, the proposals were essentially torn to shreds on ITN. Yep. And BBC, you know, Mm. This is not to criticise everybody because I think Chris, uh, too many Masons in my head, Chris Mason, their new political correspondent is usually, you know, very good. But the verdict seems to be that kind of um, he got away with it, you know, that everybody's, oh, that's great. Now there's going to be fewer, um, you know, dependents coming with uh, people that are coming to work in uh, in social care. And yeah. I mean, quite obviously, you know, they, they got... They got people on from, you know, ITN and Channel 4, which actually you'd have to say Channel 4 News is produced by ITN, who also yeah. produced Channel 5 News, actually. So it's a, it's a sharper outfit, ITN, that, that's producing the whole damn lot, really. Um, it's just this is crazy because, you know, why why does Britain think we're so special that anybody's going to come here as opposed to Germany or the States or anywhere else where they can take their families if they're going to go and work? And in any case, as someone pointed out on one of these programs, if you come here on your own even and work in social care for a period, you then qualify to have the right to bring your dependents anyway. Yeah. So that this is only postponing by one or two years the decision to come and stay here. And it, in any case, will probably mean that nobody, why would anybody actually do that? You know, so it's just unbelievable. And yet was given a big tick by, yeah. you know, that every front page in the English papers today is, you know, at long last, somebody's doing something about migration. 
Mm. And it's it's legal migration they're doing about. And this is yep. switched from the whole, oh, they're coming over here in their boats and the posters we saw during Brexit with the floods coming in here. But again, net migration, 745,000, up from 250,000 in 2019. The Tories said, we're going to cut it. Um, the, and Labour is now leading on this, but Labour's going along with this. I, I guarantee Labour will go along with these migration proposals. And what it was said about bringing a dependence in, earn enough, be a hedge fund manager, bring as many people in as you like. But actually doing the hard yards, working in health and social care, no, no, we're not having you and yours in here. They reckon that the salary threshold for skilled workers going up to £38,700, which is an interesting figure when you actually look at the fact that we will still get teachers and doctors able to come to Scotland within that figure. But you look at the English teaching uh, profession salary scales and the junior doctor salary scales, that's going to be an issue there. It's only going to reduce the, the that, that by 50,000 the numbers and they reckon the non-dependence for social care workers will reduce by 100,000. You know, and it's, it's again, that's 150,000. So it'll get it, they reckon it'll get it down to about 600,000 at that point. But again, and what the vast majority, and it's also going to come down because the influx of folk from Hong Kong and Ukraine as refugees, asylum seekers, yeah. who, are, who are the OK ones, that's coming to a halt as well. So it's going to be like inflation. They're going to turn around and be able to claim a victory having mucked about at the edges, if you like, and, and, and Labour will go along with it. Stephen Flynn, I thought, was absolutely excellent. Yes, when he, indeed. When, you know, when he was asked about this, is it, uh, oh, it's another Ian. It's, um, oh, Ian on, on, on LBC. Anyway, Ian, I, I, I hesitate Was he on LBC as well? LBC, yeah, he was on All LBC. Because right. he was another, on Good Morning Scotland this morning, I think, as well, was, and he was and excellent. He was, anyway. he was absolutely excellent on LBC. And what he did was he, he put forward, again, within that framework, appealing to the head rather than the heart. But the heart is also there. Incredibly articulate in turning around and talking about the economic benefits that were going to be brought and, and f facts and figures about this and saying we should be welcoming people in here who increase our prosperity, who pay more than pay their way. But it's 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 like Brexit. I mean, I'm hesitant to say it. it's a racist endeavour. That's what it's about. Uh, and uh, the, the, it goes back to the, the whole Brexit affair on that. And we have James Cleverly in Rwanda with the the they're going to go and sign a new treaty. Uh, which is going to make all the reality of what happens in Rwanda and the way the Rwandan government operates, uh, that's going to make the reality disappear because we're going to sign a new treaty, rush legislation through, I believe they're going to try and do it this week. And that's going to, as I say, change reality because they've changed the law and make Rwanda a safe place. And they're never going to send anybody. And I loved it on uh Yvette Cooper, who I've got no time for uh, in particular, uh, did come up with a great line. There's been more uh, home home secretaries in Rwanda than there have been asylum seekers who've been sent there. Yeah, uh, yes. But just going, just sorry, going back one a little bit. This, yeah. this, um, this, the, the interview that Stephen Flynn did on Good Morning Scotland. There was one point where I mean it was a very good you know interview because because Gary Robertson was not you know was not giving him any free passes at all I mean he was no, challenging him on every point right. but there was one point where just in passing and towards the end Gary said well of course you know because because I think Stephen had pointed out that Scots seem to be actually pretty pro uh, immigration mm -hmm. actually 
And Gary had come back and said, well, well, actually, there's no great difference between Scotland and the rest of the UK on that. And I thought, who? No, hang on a minute. Um, and found this poll just so that people have this in their minds, because these are the things that get missed. Uh, I mean, again, he, it was coming towards the end of the interview. And you need to have this. The trouble is you need to have these statistics bolted into your brain or somewhere you can find really quickly to just come back and say, well, actually, the last polling done by Diffley Partners for the, the Herald, which is, you know, let's face it now, pretty much a unionist paper. So it's not trying to make the case that Scotland is particularly different. But anyway, um, uh, this found that Scots are broadly comfortable with migration. <clears throat> Almost 60 percent say that immigration is positive. 18% negative, 23 don't knows, and almost 40% want more immigration. Now, that is totally different yeah. to the average UK results on these things. And I tweeted that. I see a lot of people retweeting it. Um, and some people getting stuck into Gary and saying, you know, he's always, you know, just anti, anti kind of independence. I, I think actually he's quite a lot of the time a very fair interviewer. Mm -hmm. but but that this is where these things have to be corrected because that is put about. I can remember this because I wrote several pieces about immigration, uh, you know, in the last three years or so. And just this lazy assertion is made that Scotland is not really particularly different yeah. in its social attitudes to the rest of the UK. And it blooming well is. Again, you have to come back to what does difference seem to you to be? I mean, I don't even need to give you the probably there is no equivalent, uh, you know, UK statistics for the way that that was broken down by the Diffley partnership here. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't even need to do that because, you know, that that is yeah. actually just really very different. The place that will probably be quite similar to Scotland is very probably London. London. Yes. So, you know, if we if we were to get and I've made that point very many times, you know, so if we're to just get try to do anything useful here about statistics, it's the same way as this is allowed to go, that the Labour Party has to be on a mission to reclaim those lost millions of voters to the Tories when they didn't lose millions of voters to the Tories. And they're likely to lose, as we've said earlier, more to you know, left parties, basically left Lib Dems. But you know what I mean? Yeah. And in, in, in Scotland, of course, nobody's even bothering to insert the little kink in the dialectic that is dear Caledonia, <laughs> where you've already got a, a left of centre pro-immigration party in the shape of the SNP. And it would be very interesting. I, I haven't really been watching to see if there's been much polling in the midst of all of this, because obviously the SNP is buffeted by many things. But is still managing to outflank Labour consistently on a sort of left humanitarian. Can we just get real and mm -hmm. start green stuff happening, even if it's a bit difficult kind of, you know, axis, which I would have thought, you know, the bulk of people are probably still fairly up for. Yeah. Not, not to mention the independent side of it, which is we should talk about the ALBA uh, proposal that yeah. was floated. Yeah. Yeah, just before we go on, before we go on to say that, there was just again about about Labour there. Uh, Robert Jenrick was on this morning and talked about illegal migrants breaking into our country, and Yvette Cooper, whom I said I've got no time for, uh, when asked to condemn the language, didn't, didn't. So mm -hmm. there, there we go. But Alba, yes, their cunning plan. I, I, I don't know about in a derogatory way, but it, it seems a bit, that's an interesting plan. Uh, to circumvent the Supreme Court decision uh, and 
come up with a, a an idea to progress the uh, progress the the potential for a referendum in Scotland, Wesley. Yeah, basically they they announced this on on St St Andrew's Day last week, um, which was to have a poll on the 10th anniversary of the NDREF, which amazing how time flies is September yeah. of next year, which would be asking the Scottish public if Holyrood should have the powers to legislate and negotiate independence. So that they, they um, uh, Alex Salmond and uh, Ash Regan are saying is not ultra virus. You know, yeah. I mean, that's not beyond the powers of the Scottish Parliament to do. So it would be a kind of way to move things on. And um, the National have covered covered the story and did a little poll um, which had about 3,600 responses. Um, that's not statistically valid because people, you know, it's not a you, you no. answer if you feel like it, although it's still three times more than most polls actually survey. But in a, <laughs> in a better, you know, they do that in a in a more even kind of way. But the result was 61 percent. Yes, this is a good idea. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting idea. And I don't know if it's getting any sort of I mean, I was a bit out of the game, partly because I was revving up to do this big trip to London and then. <laughs> I was also revving up to yeah. go to hospital today, actually, to have a kidney biopsy. My blood pressure is still so high, it's been rescheduled again. So, uh, yeah, I was a bit sort of absorbed in other things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, it sounds like a, re, a, a reasonable idea. Um, when I was looking at some of the comments on it, uh, one person, you know, there's the usual backwards and forwards, shall we just say charitably. But one person had pointed out the difficulty slightly is that at the same time as there would have to be some common cause between the independence parties to prosecute this by September, and who knows where we would be general election-wise yeah. and all of this, um, Alex Salmond would be basically taking a court case against the Scottish yep. government, which means that you know probably at the same time there will be pretty acrimonious stuff happening which will be you know and let's not get back into who should or shouldn't be you know whether Alex should or shouldn't be doing this thing he is going to be doing this thing um and so what that will mean is pretty appalling headlines probably both ways and perhaps for the SNP a lot of people will say well if they deserve it they deserve it that's true but would that be the best time to be then holding an independence, essentially another referendum when you've got, you know, when it looks like uh, the, the the pro-independence parties are tearing lumps out of one another? So hmm. I don't know. But I mean, I would love to I would like to see this better debated. And I, I don't know if it has been. And I just missed it because of all the aforementioned hmm. domestic snash. Um yeah, well, I I couldn't I couldn't spot on anything on it because I mean it, it came out I read it and then I, I filed it under and again it, it seemed to go under my radar after that so we we we, we talked to this morning about uh, about speaking about it. I mean and what occurred to me as well is that what you've got is the report potential recriminations in, in a forthcoming general election next year because Alba are standing Alba are standing twelve candidates now. What happens in the if, if in these twelve constituencies those who turn out to vote for Alba mean that the SNP lose MPs. I mean, that is the democratic process. But I, even just on an inter-party basis and a political basis, I can't seem to be all smiles and joy and let's all cooperate together. You know, and that's the key thing. It would only get through the Scottish Parliament if 
the SNP, uh, the SNP and Greens decided to support it, but it's not going to be supported by Labour. It's not going to be supported by the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats. So it requires the the Ash Reagan and uh, the uh, for Alaba and the SNP and uh, Greens to actually all vote for it. I personally speaking, I just think that the relationship is so acrimonious. There's not a, a hope in hell. But again, it is that kind of uh, draft legislation and proposal will be brought forward for for political reasons. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, that was it. It's it's, it's politics. It's, but, it's politics. But I, I suppose it, it it strikes me a lot of the time that Alba is is like a, a sort of pressure group against or within the SNP. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. quite obviously it's not. But but it's basically saying you could do this though. So yeah. kind of why aren't you? And I mean, when it's asked that way, what are you doing then? You yeah. know, what's the plan? It does leave you thinking, well, you know, have we heard anything as usual? You know, is there a strategy, whatever, whatever? Now, you know, some people will say the motivations for this, as you suggest, might be, uh, might entirely be political in the sense of everything's about politics. If it's yeah. defined as the, you know, business of of um, of distributing power in society. But um, if this is just about trying to kind of take the shine off the SNP to the advantage of ALBA, and it's just tactical, strategic, you know, mischief making. OK, but still the question remains, what yeah. are the SNP doing? So, yeah. you know, the, the 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 usefulness of this might not be that it actually comes forward, except that that once again does raise what Alba would like to have raised, which is the question, why can't we all work together? There's a very obvious quick response to that, which is because you've not got any elected MPs, MSPs or anybody, you know, Everybody is the, uh, currently the product of having basically moved party. Yeah. And a lot of people will feel that until you've actually, you know, gone through an election and got people elected in your own right, that that your kind of case for, take, you know, adopting the moral high ground is kind of wobbly. I know the rules allow this, but the, the rules are not the way that the heart works, basically. And kind of, you know, people will, I think, be that's the question mark that's placed over everything. But still, you know, what 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 is what is the SNP going to do in terms of that? Because it would be complete. It looks to me like it would be within the powers of the Scottish Parliament. It was apparently, according to Alex, what was going to be his plan B yeah. if David Cameron yeah. had knocked him back ten years ago. So here we are, not much further on after ten years, with that as a proposition. And just yeah. can I t- make a, mm-hmm. a sort of completely unlikely leap to other things that have just sat dragging on? Um, or, or at least uh, uh, unlikely propositions, because across in Northern Ireland, and I was speaking to some people oh, recently yeah. who said, you've no idea how many people listen to this podcast in Northern Ireland. So hello, you guys. <laughs> um, and I mean, how, this, this how, is, how are you all doing? Don't, so no, don't, don't do don't that, Pat. Just take no. it back. Take it back. Yes. Um, but the, the, the fascinating thing here is that a committee uh, at Westminster had basically suggested that the... Um, the first minister and deputy first minister position in NI should basically be made equivalent. They should the the, the first and deputy first ministers should be renamed joint yes. first ministers. Yes. Now, I sort of looked at that and thought, oh, you're joking. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, how completely unfair is that in that? This is only coming to light, obviously, because Sinn Féin um, yeah. are, are set to have, you know, the, the first yeah. minister's position. And unbelievably, 
if you look further into that story, yeah. what is the reaction? Sinn Féin support it. Mm-hmm. And it's the DUP who have Absolutely. grave concerns. Yeah. It's extraordinary because when you actually look and when you look deeper into this, you know, the whole thing about the way that the power sharing executive and the Stormont government was set up was entirely to do with power sharing. And so although the titles are different, both the offices hold equal weight and one minister can't act without the other, which is where the phenomenon of the Chuckle Brothers, you know, came yeah. in with Paisley and McGuinness because they actually couldn't work without one another. So the way that Sinn Féin's looking at it, even though they're the ones that could be quite entitled to say hop off, you, you know, because yeah. we, we basically won this one fair and square. Um, they're basically saying, yeah, fine. You know, because, I mean, to an extent, we could examine this because um, th- there has to be joint working. And perhaps this is a way to encourage more joint working which is what you would not have expected at all from Sinn Féin. And here's the, the, you know, the blooming DUP. I mean, you know, coming in basically to just say, nope, you know, that we we can't, we, you know, this is not going to help anybody. And and the point is that whatever they want to say, it was the protocol that was the reason that they basically caved um, Stormont. You know, it's not anything else. So, it's it's so completely unfair that the whole of Northern Ireland is having to wait for what? For the DUP to basically win again. I mean, is this just like a version of what's going to happen about Rwanda, where the, the government can just say, you know, against all, all, all the uh, contrary information, Rwanda is safe because we say it's safe. And so what? The <laughs> DUP is going to say, well, we won. You know, the only way that this is going to get resolved, and oh, we'd so like to be able to get Stormont up and running again, is that actually you guys didn't really vote properly the last time, and we won. Because us winning is the only way that this cooperation can ever continue. It's unbelievable. Yeah, well, that, it, was, it was funny because when I look back at the, the, the negotiations that took place for the Good Friday Agreement, of course, the DUP wasn't involved at that point. The SDLP, which was then the major nationalist party, proposed joint first ministers. It was going to be first minister, first minister. And in fact, Martin McGuinness, before he developed that, before he, he went into a coalition with, and in terms of the, the government with the DUP, Martin McGuinness used to refer to himself as a, the first minister. He then referred to himself as the deputy first minister. Well, the, the, and it was the Ulster Unionist Party who are at that point the major unionist party who objected to them both being called first ministers. You know, so that but the interesting thing about it, as well as the other aspect of the proposal, is they move from this necessity of having uh because as people may or may not know, but probably know if they'll listen to this podcast, particularly in Northern Ireland, that as an MLA, you've got to declare yourself nationalist or unionist or other. So other eliminates completely alliance who describe themselves as other and people before profit who are a pro-unity, uh, but a socialist party say we're neither nationalist nor unionist. So in order to, to actually become at first point speaker, to have the speaker elected, so you have to have a speaker before you can elect elect first minister and deputy first minister, you have to have a majority 
of both nationalists and the self-declared nationalists and self-declared unionists voting for it. The proposal from the Westminster Committee is it should be a simple two-thirds supermajority. So that then brings into play the ability to nominate uh, non-nationalists and non-unionists as first minister, equal first ministers, and it knocks out the necessity to have a majority of unionists and nationalists vote for the speaker and therefore vote for the first minister. So it, it's knocking at the the hold that any political party can have of stymieing the system, as the DUP are doing just now, refusing to vote to have a speaker, and therefore that says you can't actually have a vote to have first minister. And the way it currently stands, you've got it's you've got 53 state of parties who would be, and I'm adding alliance into that, who would probably go along with that, and 37 who who wouldn't. So the Ulster unionists then become the kingmakers again. Would they go along with the two-thirds majority in order to get Stormont up and running again? So it's an interesting one. So I, I would be intrigued to see what the Ulster unionists do about this. And if they come out in support of it, there is a potential that this could get through and you could have Stormont up and running again if it moves to that two-thirds majority to elect simple majority, no need for cross-community, two-thirds simple majority to get a speaker elected and therefore get a first minister elected. So it's interesting times. But as you say, Leslie, you would have thought it was all, oh no, we can't have a we can't have a, a Fenian first minister putting it in those terms. But it's much more than that and much more exciting, I think. And it, it, it seems to me a set of eminently sensible decisions taken to move the process forward. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I'm glad you got all those statistics right. Just to throw a few more in though, the Irish Times have just done a survey, they do it yeah. every year, and they found that there's, there's basically uh, the Northern Catholics, uh, are, are, there's an increase in support to, in support for a, a referendum on a united Ireland. Uh, last year, it was 74 percent. This year, it's 81 percent. Yeah. So, you know, that's sort of increasing. Northern Protestants are kind of pretty static on it. Um, and there's an increase in, in the Republic um, about having a referendum within 10 years. That's gone up from 75 to 81 percent as well. Uh, so, yeah, it just feels Ireland is as a, is constantly on the move. But the interesting thing about all of this is that within Northern Ireland, that's kind of, you know, often seen as just a lot more glacial, shall we say, mm -hmm. in, in the in the dynamics. There's movement within that as well, which should have cross thinking for us, at least, because, you know, the point that's being made by many of the parties, in fact, all of the parties except the DUP, is that power sharing has to evolve. And, you know, that, so that's the agreement that was made the same time as the Scottish Parliament 25 years ago. Now, clearly, people would say, well, the Scottish Parliament has evolved. We've got welfare powers. We've got various powers since then. But enough, you know, enough for the public of Scotland. And it brings you back to this question of would we have a referendum on that, on more powers? Yeah. Because, you know, there's the some of the parties um, are saying that they would like the changes in Northern Ireland this proposals to be put to the people. Well, it's funny, isn't it? They get to have a referendum <laughs> yes. oh, on, yes. on, on wanting to be able to kind of make something work better for them. Whereas, you know, there will be complete pelters for any proposal to have more powers or different arrangements for Scotland. But anyway, there's your thoughts about Northern Ireland, folks. Yes. Yeah, well, and uh, well, we were talking about the Sunday show earlier, Leslie, and Patrick Harvey appeared on it. And 
and it was that there was a, a, a substantial focus throughout the, the televised element on uh, renewables and the potential for nuclear energy. And you had the usual suspects on talking about that. And it seemed to be coming through to the, the fact that there was lack of lack of storage and the necessity for uh, nuclear as a base energy uh, just to be there all the time because you couldn't always depend on uh, the sun. You couldn't always depend on wind. And uh, uh, just as Stephen Flynn seemed to be, to have a grasp of it, what, what I was disappointed in, uh, and you're going to come on to the thing you you really were pleased with that Patrick Harvey said, Patrick didn't mention uh, tidal energy at all, particularly in the week that, that saw Nova Innovation secure 20 million euros worth of funding from Europe for a European project to install, I think it's at 16 uh, tidal turbines, the biggest that's ever been done, I think, in in the world to actually provide energy uh, along the, the Orkney Islands. And, and again, looking at that, the potential that tidal energy could be, I think, about 8 or 10% of a, a permanent energy because tide's always going in and out. And that, 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 that wasn't mentioned at all, which was a disappointment. However, there was a there was pleasure in the fact that that, that Patrick Harvey has been emphasising, and I leave it to you to say your favourite to do with the, the heating revolution that should be taking place. Patrick came out in favour of well district heating. But, I mean, I, but still, it's sort of I mean I, I wrote a column in the National actually last week, which was really looking at the the different way that <coughs> Denmark has approached a lot of this stuff. Because and and just to say the film, the film is going to be in about 14 different places in January and February. The information is being posted even as we speak on lesliriddich.com forward slash films by the coach. Um, after those screenings are there and there'll be Q and A's with me at the end of each one of them. Um, it will then go online because that is kind of what cinemas want. So March it'll be online. Um, and the dates and venues and everything will be on the website. Um, but Denmark. So the, the point I was making was. Really, what's really striking when you speak to anybody who's really involved in the big changes that have happened in Denmark, they didn't happen to make Denmark green. That's not the way they were sold. That's okay. not the purpose of them. I mean, they happened a while ago because they got off the mark quickly 25 years ago for Samso, the model island that's pretty much net zero for Denmark, generally switching away from the use of oil and gas and and having hugely expensive car uh, import prices. That was all done to maintain the independence of Denmark. Because they realized that, you know, the, the OPEC price cr crash or rather being raised in the 1970s made them very, very aware that they were not energy independent. And so the, the, the changes that they made were done entirely in the name of basically creating, a, you know, OK, a sustainable mix, because that was what they would have to have to have it under their own control. Um, equally, on Samso, the point made very eloquently by Soren Hermansen in the film was that when he came in all guns blazing about, you know, having won this competition to get Samso to be the model community that Denmark was wanting to produce in the wake of signing up to the Paris agreements or no, it was that maybe it was basically back in Rio. Anyway, uh, whichever were the first ones, Denmark wanted to say, hey, and look, here's how we did it. Um, 
he went running around the place trying to say to people, yeah, we're going to be sustainable. We're going to be green. We're going to be, you know, the leaders and whatever. And everyone went, yeah, whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And so he had to catch a grip. And in the end, there was about three or four things that every proposal was proofed about. Does it create local jobs? Does it help islanders stay living here? Does it reduce prices? And does it create growth on the island? Yeah. There's not a green in there. As Soren famously said, green is a color. So green is also the outcome of all those things. Mm-hmm. But it's not the way you sold it. And the way that they sold um, district heating to people was not to go out and say, hey, you can save the environment and blah, blah, blah. They basically went out, you know, they, they sorted out that they would get supplies of straw from all the local farmers. That would be their crop. Um, they got people to jump onto it because they figured out it could be 20 percent cheaper than everything else. And they had had demonstrated to them the insecurity of depending on oil imports from, you know, countries that could be, you know, that could be dodgy, even though, in fact, Denmark still has some. It's the largest oil producer actually in the EU since Britain has left. So the point was it was put to them in very different terms. And even when it came to the question of the objections people would have about district heating, which is the streets will all be dug up and more blooming pipes put in and it'll just be mayhem. The Energy Academy that was piloting this went and spoke to the electricity people who undergrounded their cables, the water people who renewed their pipes, the broadband people who put in fiber optic cable. They had one trench yeah. dug and they put all that stuff down together so that instead of creating problems, they solved problems. That's what people like. And you can only do that if you're ultra local. That island has 3,700 people and its own council. So coming back to where we are with the Greens in Scotland, you know, the thing is, and of course, I'll grant you that, that you know, this is 25 years ago. Clearly, the, the planet has kind of become more of a, mm. you know, a crisis, right? So there might be more people that are motivated just by something being green. But actually, I still don't think the Danes would be putting forward the kind of approach that we have had from the Scottish Greens, to be blunt, about how you move on with heat pumps and the like, where, I mean, Soren's great thing uh, that he always says is get the engineers out of it. You don't want a discussion, first of all, about how to do something. You want a discussion about why. Yeah. And every time you wander off too quickly on how it's done before you've actually worked out why you're doing it, and what benefits you'll get, you will end up getting people's backs up. And I think that's where we've got with the heat pumps so that people are almost sort of saying, well, glory be, you know, now we finally got that people that are living in urban areas won't need heat pumps. To, To my understanding of it, there was never a proposal to have. I mean, it's crazy, crazy to think that you're going to have individual heat pumps in flats. You know, it's just nonsensical. So why was that? That came to the fore so quickly and everyone panics because, it, you know, it was never a proposal that should have been allowed to run. A far better way to do this is to say back to, you know, uh, uh, the the point from the Danes. Do we they cut their district heating prices, which were already lower than ours last year? They cut them in the energy crisis. Ours trebled bills. Right. There's where I'd start. Absolutely. 
just yeah. right there. So here's our theory, here's our, our aim here is that we're going to get on board with district heating because within and get, let's case this excellent energy economists around just get the timings sorted. But in this length of time, we will end up cutting prices and we will stabilize them. And above all, we'll control it, you know, so that the control is not sitting in BP or blimmin, you know, a, a, a British prime minister who decides whether or not we're just going to basically hang on being dependent on oil and gas for another 200 years to serve them through an election at least there's some way that we can advance now there's a snag there is definitely a snag which is that the pricing of renewable energy is bizarrely matched to the price of gas yes so that even though <laughs> solar and all sorts of renewable is cheaper than gas it doesn't become cheaper to the punter than gas because it's priced at the same way. There's got to be a way to get around that. This is a problem because energy is reserved to Westminster and nobody cares. Nobody's able to change, you know, even get this going as a proper debate. But th there's there's a definitely a problem in all of this. And that is causing problems with electrical alternatives to fossil fuel heating because they have to be priced at gas prices yeah. and they shouldn't have to be. But that is also what's bumping up the cost for replacements, whether it's heat pumps or whatever. Not quite sure where district heating sits in that, but I'm sure it's badly and adversely affected. Now, again, let's just clear all the other stuff down and let's just get a proper debate going about just this, because that's what we need to see progress on, not anything else to get the public behind you because they would be to get yeah. everybody's kind of hopes up and to get a collective solution to a collective problem, which is being alive in a cold northern climate. It's not an individual problem. No. And I just said uh, individuals are all discovering that our, our uh, energy prices are going up again. You know, yeah. and they're going up and that's the way to tackle it. What is the bag? I'm like that with everything, Leslie. What is the practical value to the individual in terms of these measures? And that's the way to do it. That's the story. And the Danes being incredibly practical, coming from Viking stock, decided that was the way to go. And it worked. It worked. It I should say, them. actually, that that um, I've had a few texts because I do, as you have sort of inferred, rant on about this quite a lot. Um, but um, I got a text from Maz uh, Hastings, who is working uh, for the builders on behalf of Edinburgh Council to deliver a whole housing scheme village in Edinburgh, precisely with district heating mm -hmm. built into it. They're also working on another project in Glasgow on district heating. And this seems to be the way forward where it is dense housing schemes. So yeah. he's given us a link, given a link to that. It's Western Villages in Granton and Edinburgh. And Maz, that is absolutely brilliant. But as with most things with with housing, we in 10 years time, we will still be living in the, in the housing that's already here. You know, the question mm -hmm. is how you retrofit tenements and and flats that already exist. And it's great that, that, that on the margins, every new development looks like it's now opting into district heating schemes. But we so need the initiative to be taken, you know, in advance of that. And, um, you know, it's crazy, too, that some councils, I spoke to councillors who basically are worried that if they speak to companies for advice on how to frame up um, a district heating scheme in existing housing, uh, and that company then pitches up to actually get the contract, 
they'll yeah. be accused of having basically diddled the thing uh, yeah. and basically broken procurement rules. Now, again, I've spoken to other people who go, this is utterly bonkers. You know, that's of course, everybody speaks to companies who are the experts to get their help in framing. In, in fact, many, you would say many of the times people uh, and Commonweal have rightly shone a light on the degree to which uh, KPMG and other consultancies mm. are basically invited in to practically shape our whole blooming legislation. So fair enough, there's a kind of caution. But this is getting kind of crazy in that we're actually looking for professional, we've done it for 100 years, levels of expertise that companies in the in the Scandies have, basically. And if you're scared to speak to them in case you then award them a contract and people think there's been a stitch up, what the... Blooming you know, <laughs> Yes. It's just, no, that's just get on with it. And I mean, if this is actually a factor in some councils thinking, can you speak to the other councils who are just doing stuff? Yeah. Uh, I mean, COSLA, come on, what are you for? Unless you're for trying to create some best practice on this and just allow some of these misapprehensions to be put to right. Because it's too urgent. It's too urgent for all of this. Yeah. I'd be intrigued to see if any legislation or essay there any, I don't know. I mean, this is the, my, my degree of ignorance. There's the, the, the proposal to, to build about another 150 houses in a development right next to us here in Wormit. Will that be, will they, will they have to put in uh, district heating? It makes absolute sense to me, you know, that you've got that there and it's a private, a private enterprise. But I don't I don't know enough about that. And maybe I should look it up. But anyways, as we come to the end of this look back at not everything that's happened this week, we've got a couple of things to look forward to. One more than the other, which is tomorrow we've got Boris Johnson appearing in front of the COVID inquiry and the narrative's already gone out there by the Mail, the Telegraph and the Times, etc. Yeah, yeah, he's going to make an apology, but he got the big calls right. Yep, we shall wait and see how uh, how he appears in front of the COVID inquiry tomorrow in front of some very, very sharp cases, uh, both UK and Scottish. And the second thing which I'm really looking forward to tonight, which is Scotland versus England, which uh, the women and uh, we've got the paradoxical position that because we are still uh, part of the UK, it is Team GB that goes to the Olympics and the designated team to uh, whose results mean that the Team GB can go to the Olympics is England. So we are now in a position where Scotland are playing England and if England uh, win, Team GB, which will include Scottish players, will go to the Olympics. But if Scotland win, Team GB, GB probably won't go to the Olympics because and the Scottish players have actually done themselves out of it. So, again, that's the absolute inanity of the draw. And uh, I would say it's the absolute inanity of not having an independent Scotland, at the very least, so we can actually get our own teams to things like the Olympics. So anything else before we... Oh, yeah. And the big thing, that the anything else that was a way to say is, at uh, this time of year in particular, just a big thanks to everybody who subscribes. I mean, uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your continuing support since we started the subscription service a couple of years ago. And uh, people will be aware of what you get access to, our early doors access to the specials that we do. And we've got more, more up and coming. You also got full access, the complete access to the archive of the Leslie Reddick podcast, which now goes back, I think, about 
12, 13 years, Leslie. Mm-hmm. It's a, a remarkable number. I think the very first one was with with Alex Salmond, and that would be one to go yeah. go back and <laughs> yes, go back and listen true. to. Yeah, to take take you back on that, and it allows us to continue to develop the bike kit and to go out and do many other things. So a big thanks to all our subscribers, and if you do feel like subscribing, it's a. Uh, lesliedrider.com forward slash podcast forward slash subscribe and on well, that yes oh, well yes. done that man yes yes <laughs> you have remembering the details this week yes yeah well yeah i mean it's and that is despite going out on friday night with my my uh teammates from the very first hockey club i played for when i was only 14 so there's some guys there that i played i've known for 57 years uh who we, we all met up and got out yesterday for a for a lunch uh, yes, it was that lunch yesterday, Coach. On on that a reminder of Christmas and Christmas lunches, we'll see you next week, chums. <laughs>